Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments from North American and European trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip, scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me. Directly, anyways. If there's one thing I love more than anything, it's glamour. Whether in the gauzy, soft focus of an old Hollywood film or the tawdry glitz of 70s porn, glamour transforms the drab into the dramatic, the everyday into the extraordinary. It's no wonder that many trans women are dedicated to it. When life has me down, I turn to beauty and glamour to feel refreshed. In this week's episode, we'll be transported back to the glamorous world of 1960s drag balls, 70s porn rags, and 80s cabarets as we follow the intertwining stories of two people who carved out niches for themselves in unusual places. A true sister act, One of them went on to become an internationally recognized cabaret icon and transsexual woman, while the other became a porn legend and later detransitioned to start a family. So join us as we look back at the glossy and glittering lives of Kim Christie and International Crisis. Ladies and gentlemen, from the Champs-Élysées to the Rue de la Plague. No easy life. Ladies and gentlemen, is known about the beginnings of Kim and Crisis, at least not in the natural sense. What we do know is that Kim was born in 1950 and raised in a Catholic family in the Bronx, while Crisis came into the world a year later and grew up in Brooklyn. As one commenter on a defunct porn message board pointed out, it's hard to pin down much about the early lives of either of them, particularly Crisis, whose approach to the past was somewhat malleable, changing every time it was recounted. Even when the two of them met is unclear. In a 2011 interview with The Advocate, Kim Christie recalls that they met on Halloween night at the 10th of Always, a club popular with drag queens and trans women, who as a group were largely indistinguishable at the time. She says that she must have been about 15 then, Crisis 14, which would put this event in 1965. However, the two appear in a 1964 photo inside Life magazine, posing and preening in front of the Astor Hotel, which makes their meeting in 1965 impossible. It seems more likely that they'd met in 1963 or 1964. Regardless, here's how Kim remembers it. Quote, 
I recall that her outfit bowled me over, white go-go boots and white vinyl trench coat with boxer shorts underneath. She had the cutest little twiggy haircut. We both pretended to be older than we were, even to each other. Then we figured out we both lived in the Bronx. We both were out way later than we should have been, and we both needed to figure out how to de-drag and get home. We figured it out and became friends for years. At age 14, Kim and Crisis heard that Liz and Dick, by which I mean Liz Taylor and Richard Burton, then the biggest stars in the world, the sort of Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt of their time, were staying at the Astor. Kim says of that night, quote, we got ourselves all up and took the subway from the Bronx to Manhattan. We hung out on the street shouting their names out. They tried to chase us away several times. Then I noticed this big black Lincoln Continental drive slowly by, and I was sure it was them. So I called out to the car and camped and posed and whatnot. The window rolled down and there was a flash of light. Off went the car into the night. She points out that cross-dressing made them a target for police harassment. Quote, we had to be careful, though. Female impersonation was still against the law, and the cops would hassle us in the street. I remember taking the shirt tails of my Catholic school uniform and tying them just above my waistline. I had clip-on curtain rings as earrings, and I used pencil lead to shape my blonde eyebrows. I grew my hair as long as my father would let me and teased it all up just so. Kim thought nothing of the photo the night it happened, but it would soon change her life for good. Quote, Aunt Joan saw it and immediately called my mother. She said, Gertie, go to the corner store and buy Life magazine right now. I was already kind of wild by that age and my parents could not do much to control me. I came home from spending the night with friends one day a few months after the photo was taken and my mother had the magazine open on the kitchen table to that picture. The article was about teenage delinquents in Times Square, something like that. How could you let this happen, she said. She was pretty enraged, but I was completely bowled over. I was famous. My parents were not as charmed. Neither were the nuns at Our Lady of Mount Carmel. Another scandal broke at the same time. The Brothers of the Holy Cross were found to be patronizing the workers of Times Square and not being very discreet about it. Somehow it all got linked into the same drama— me and the priests. I have no idea who took and sold the image to Life magazine, but I sure would love to talk to them now. The irony is that I was a little wild at the time, but this image forced the issue. I was out of the house within a year or two. In a way, the image created me. Not long thereafter, Kim and Crisis moved out together into a shoebox apartment on Mott Street near Broome and Houston. Only 16, they helped each other navigate not only paying the rent, largely through sex work it seems, but also with finding doctors and getting on hormones. The Advocate published some incredible photos from this time taken by photographer Sam Menning for Female Mimics magazine. Female Mimics, which Kim herself would one day own and publish, was the premier magazine for drag queens, cross-dressers, and trans women in the 1960s. You can find many issues of it online, and I highly recommend checking it out. It's a favorite of mine. The two sisters spent their time attending and performing in drag balls. 
You can see them both for a moment in the legendary 1968 film The Queen, starring drag superstar Flawless Sabrina, and one of the originators of voguing, Crystal LaBeja. They were also regulars at places like Club 82, which is discussed in the first episode of OFTV. Though they made their living as street-based sex workers, both women aspired to the seemingly more pampered lives of showgirls. Kim says, quote, We were class-conscious more than gender-aware. We wanted to be high-paid female impersonators on the show circuit. I loved working on the street, but I knew that the showgirls were actually getting boyfriends who paid for apartments and stuff. I wanted to be kept. I never narrowed myself to just men or women, but I knew I had a lot more power as a woman than a boy. So I made that work for me. Kim's thick Bronx accent kept her from that world of sugar daddies and glitter. So her boyfriend Glenn, an English major and hustler, tried to Pygmalion it out of her for both their benefit. In her 2011 interview, Kim is quick to point out that the lines between trans women and drag queens were blurred to the point of non-existence in this scene at least as long as girls hadn't had bottom surgery. On the rare occasions someone did have bottom surgery, things would change suddenly. Kim says, quote, they usually rode out of Dodge as quick as possible. It was so expensive to have the surgery then that a girl usually had to have a very interested sponsor. Usually the guy felt guilty that you had a dick and figured if you had the change, it would fix it all. Too many times I saw that after the change, the boyfriend lost interest. Seemed he was more interested in the boy parts than he thought. Oops, too late. In addition to street-based sex work, Kim and Crisis worked as strippers. Kim's stripping song was the theme from the film A Man and a Woman, which she took as a burlesque wink to her own gender. Take a listen and try to imagine if you will. also spent quite a while working as a dom, even training alongside some of Europe's most infamous dominatrixes during her drag review tours overseas. Kim remembers that she and Crisis weren't particularly affected by Stonewall in 1969. Quote, I was 19, I was being well cared for by an oil tycoon. I would introduce him to people as the keeper of the flame. They would look askance at me, and then I would smile demurely and say, and I'm the flame. I didn't have to work so hard at that point. I was still performing at the Club 82 a bit. Meanwhile, just edging over 20, Crisis started to build some renown for herself in the performance world, first at Club 82, but later moving on to the famed Jewel Box Review, which we discussed in our previous episode on Stormy Delabier. The 70s were a good time to be a transsexual performer. New York and all of Europe were practically bursting at the seams with trans cabaret performers, such as Amanda Lear and Romy Hogg, both of whom had high-profile romances with David Bowie and other rock stars. 
crisis was on the same train and it took her across Europe where she became friends with Salvador Dali who was quite open about his many close relationships with trans women. Crisis also began appearing in softcore porn magazines, which during the 70s golden era of porn began featuring trans performers. She appeared most famously on the cover of White House, a UK magazine that billed itself as, quote, the international quality glamour magazine. This rag was not, in fact, named after the home of the US president, but rather was named by its founder, David Sullivan, after UK anti-smut campaigner, Mary Whitehouse. Mary Whitehouse had spent the 70s attacking gay publications like Gay News and plays such as The Romans in Britain. Available for only 75p, this 1976 issue features International Crisis tits out with the caption, quote, This woman is a man, see inside. This role of the shocking transsexual reveal would come to characterize all of her mainstream work for the rest of her life. She was repeatedly cast as the trans woman whose wig is removed to reveal that she is supposedly a man. According to one commenter on a porn message board, she hated playing these roles, but they were all that were available to her, at least in the mainstream. During the 70s, Kim Christie moved to the West Coast, where friend and perhaps sometimes lover Lenny Bertman set her up as a porn producer and director. She had already been doing photography for Eros publications, which put out glossy porn rags such as Eros, Hooker, and Exposé. In 1979, she took over publication of Female Mimics and changed its name to International Female Mimics, which began to focus more on transsexual women and feature explicit photography for the first time. Kim eventually met Sulka at an event in Los Angeles. Kim would turn Sulka into perhaps the most famous transsexual porn star of the 1980s, starting with a supporting role in Kim's 1980 film, Dream Lovers, and eventually culminating in her epic porn masterpiece, Sulka's Wedding, in 1983, which featured her as the first out post-operative transsexual porn star. Kim became a major director and producer of She-Male Fetish, and straight pornography during the 1980s. Within a few years, she eventually met the woman who would later become her wife. I haven't been able to track down her name, and I think that's by design. Kim detransitioned and began living as Ken around this time. Kim now describes herself as fluid in her sexuality and gender. Here's how she put it in her interview with The Advocate, quote, I am married to my wife. I am with her. Something I learned from all my years working with clients all over the world, men and women can both be very fluid in their sexuality. Plus things like certain sexual scenarios can engage a person deeply for a time. Sometimes it's same-sex activity. Some people stay attracted to one gender or another all their lives. I was with men when I lived as a woman who would never have called themselves gay. But they were not unhappy about my extra parts at all. Like I said, back then, we did not name things so much. I never thought of any of the things I did as who I was. They were things I liked, things I did. Crisis, meanwhile, was continuing to gain notoriety in the underground club scene. 
She also, at some point, got pumped with silicone, a fact that will be important later, so just bookmark that in your mind. In 1982, she appeared in the Van Halen video Pretty Woman as, you guessed it, a trans woman revealed by a wig removal. Here's a clip. The video was controversial for a scene in which Crisis is tied up and fondled by two little people, leading to MTV pulling it from the air. Given that I do pride myself on bringing in a little bit of gossip into my show, I have to dish that offstage, Crisis was apparently a top whose preferred trade were Jersey college boys. Crisis was also part of the iconic drag troupe Hot Peaches, which featured many of the major New York stars, such as Marsha P. Johnson. They performed at the Pyramid Club. And she also headlined two solo shows, Jesus Crisis Superstar and The Last Temptation of Crisis. Crisis performed at Wigstock as well. Her final film appearance is in the 1990 Nick Nolte crime drama Q&A, in which Crisis appears as Jose Malpica, a trans woman witness who must be eliminated. But before the film could be released, Crisis took ill. She was diagnosed with cancer and her health deteriorated quickly. Many people say that the cancer was a result of her silicone injections in her breasts. But it's worth noting that that was frequently the speculation whenever a trans woman in New York died. See for another famous example, Candy Darling. And that rumors such as this functioned as a sort of hushed deterrent to the idea of transitioning itself. Whether or not her cancer was actually caused by silicone or hormones, we'll probably never know. What we do know is that Kim Christie came to her bedside in her final days and was there with her sister when she passed. Crisis, at the time of her death, had been working on a documentary titled Split, Portrait of a Drag Queen. The film was awarded the Panorama's Audience Award at the 1992 Berlin Film Festival and is available on DVD. Following her death, Crisis's longtime friend, gender-fluid British singer Pete Burns of Dead or Alive fame, named his new band after her and released a cover of Rebel Rebel as their first single in tribute to her. I'll let Pete play us out. Thanks for listening to this episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in Montreal, Quebec, on the traditional territories of the Algonquin and Haudenosaunee. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. 
If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. And if you'd like to contribute to the making of future episodes, please consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com slash OFTV. You can also tweet at me at Morgan M. Page on Twitter. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night.